In a couple of moments, we're going to read um, the second half of the fifth chapter of Mark's Gospel. If you um, have one of the church Bibles, it's page 1479. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to grab one of those, and you're welcome to keep it also. Um, So we're going to read Mark 5, verse 21, to the end of that chapter, a more lengthy uh, narrative about two great miracles that took place on the same occasion. It says, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. And then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet. And implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood, it's menstrual bleeding, for 12 years, and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had, and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, if I touch even his garments, I'll be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And be healed of your disease. And while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he'd entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and and those who were with uh, him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up, And began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. I love that little note which is in brackets in our Bibles at the end there. Just after Jesus has healed the girl, so she got up and began walking. And Mark just adds a note, for she was 12 years of age. Just to clarify exactly what kind of miracle this is. It's not a three-month-old who suddenly starts walking around the room. Um, he just wants to make that perfectly clear to us. Um, I, want to, I want to speak this evening about, about the, the touch of Jesus Christ and what, what he wants to do in our lives. And um, the backdrop, of course, to understanding what's going on here is the reality of pain and suffering 
that's present, ever present in the world, present in our lives, present all around us, and of the need that that brings about. And uh, of course, one of the, the great problems in a secular age, as far as I can see, is that in a world in which God has been taken out of the picture and everything is, 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 uh, is just nature, is just material, is just chance, it seems to me that very little can be said to the problem of suffering and the problem of evil as we experience it in day-to-day life. At best, we can find ways of managing the sufferings and challenges of life. But at worst, when someone is honest about the fact that a godless universe um, came from nowhere and is going to fizzle out into nowhere eventually, then the honest reality and the only answer that can be given to suffering is that it's totally meaningless and totally futile. And so while it's often been the case that, the, that those who, who do not believe in, in Christianity, especially, but also in any faith, would point the finger and say, what about the problem of evil in this world? How do you handle suffering? And they ask the Christian that particularly. And it puts you on the back foot, doesn't it, when you hear that question? Actually, I think the real problem is, well, what do you do with these things when it's all entirely meaningless and there's no justice in life and it all is just a random occurrence? Now, of course, the Christian faith wants to speak into that by giving hope that's centered upon the person of Jesus Christ and what he wants to do in your life. And it seems to me that that immediately, upon reading a story like this, your inner skeptic, maybe just a small voice in the back of your mind, or maybe a very loud one if you're not a Christian, your inner skeptic will be telling you, well, this is just fantasy. This is just myth. This is just the kind of story um, recorded by primitive people or corrupted over the years and embellished or just made up out of thin air. And it it doesn't answer anything of the problem of the pain that we experience in day-to-day life because it isn't true in the first place that he healed this woman, that he rose a girl from the dead. And before we get into the meaning of the story and what it means for us, I just wanted to quickly address that. There's a number of ways that you can see just in, these, in this story, some of the evidences that this was a real thing that happened. And that, that has to be emphasized right from the get-go because this is the first time we've encountered in the Gospel of Mark Jesus raising someone from the dead. And you probably, some of you may have just sat there and just not even let that even register with you for a second, but that's amazing. And we have to decide, is it true? Does Christ have that kind of power? Is he that kind of a person? There was the great um, uh, literature professor, C.S. Lewis, who had famously converted from atheism to belief in Jesus uh, and becoming a Christian whilst being a professor at Oxford University, much later began to write essays about his Christian faith in defense of it. And one of the things he wrote about was the Bible. And he, he'd been schooled in literature his entire life. He'd from being a boy, he'd read the Greek myths and the Nordic myths and the Anglo-Saxon myths. He'd read fan, uh, fantasy literature from across the centuries. And he was familiar with that kind of work. He knew what it felt like. He knew the kind of tropes that kept appearing within that sort of literature. And he was, he was an expert in it. And when he read the Gospels, this is what he said about people who think that this is just fantasy. He said, I've been reading poems, romances, vision, literature, legends, myths all my life. I know what they're like. I know that not one of them is like this. 
He says, either this is reportage, as in like journalism, of that kind of feel, and pretty close up to the facts, or else some unknown writer in the second century without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern, novelistic, realistic narrative. If it's untrue, it must be narrative of that kind. And the reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned to read. He says it doesn't feel like any of the other mythical literature that you ever encounter in the history of the world. It feels like a modern telling of the facts. And the, the whole genre of literature that you encounter in novels and fiction these days in which it's portrayed as though it were real was not invented until a couple of centuries ago. So he's saying, well, what is this then? And the only answer we can really come up with is that it was fact that Jesus did these things. Some of the evidences, by the way, and these are just freebies before we get into the passage. The, some of the evidences that in a story like this, that it is in fact an eyewitness account of things like this. Did you notice how Mark names Jairus, the synagogue ruler, but doesn't name the woman who was healed? Now, that seems odd. And one of the things you have to wrestle with when you, is like, why, why are these weird random details included in these stories, like the name of a man? who otherwise we don't care about his name, do we? Richard Borkham, who's a scholar, a theological professor in Scotland and and very eminent in his field, wrote a massive book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And he argues really convincingly that one of the reasons why you see these certain people named in the Gospels, some of you are familiar with um, some of these characters who occur just randomly from time to time, he says is that this, that these people were still alive at the time that this Gospel was written. So when Mark was writing this story down about the healing of Jairus, uh, the, the re- resurrection of Jairus' daughter, anyone could have read Mark's gospel, gone to this little town on the edge of Galilee, found the old man Jairus, and asked him to tell them the story again. I find that very persuasive. Another thing that you notice in this story is how, and this is something we, we, we come up against time and time again through the gospels, is how the disciples are portrayed, Jesus' own followers. Now, now, bear this in mind. The disciples are the men you have to listen to if you want to know about Jesus after Jesus has ascended to heaven. So it's in their own interest to make themselves look credible, to make themselves look intelligent and sophisticated and believable and all you know, like expert witnesses. But actually, when you read the stories they wrote down, they come off looking most of the time, like idiots. And you, you see it here in this story, how Jesus, after he's touched by the woman who's healed, he turns around and says, who touched me? And the disciples, they, they kind of recoil, don't they? And they say, um, they say, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And always, they're just a couple of steps behind Jesus in actually having a clue what is going on at any given moment in the stories. It's another reason why you say, well, it's because they didn't make this stuff up. This is just what happened. This is just reportage of the events on that day. Another thing that I think is a beautiful little moment at the end of this story is how it's just told. And you know, all of this was written down in Greek. Peter was, would have told all of this to Mark, who wrote it down in, in, in Greek originally. And, and Peter was living at Rome, in Rome at the time. And Peter would have been bilingual. He was a businessman. He'd... He'd, he'd, he, Greek was the business language of the day, but his mother tongue would have been Aramaic. And as he's telling Mark this story, Mark is writing it down, it's all being written down in Greek, but right there at the end, you have this little moment 
And it happens throughout the New Testament just occasionally where the Aramaic bursts through. And you think, well, why? Why does Jesus say, why is it recorded that he said, Talitha kumi to the little girl? And the obvious answer is that as Peter was telling this story, the exact phrase is just emblazoned on his memory. You could never forget a moment like that, could you? How he saw Jesus take the girl's hand and he remembers the exact words he used in the Aramaic to resurrect her and how all of their breath was just taken away in an instant. I love these, how, how real and gritty and genuine and authentic these stories are. And that's just to help you. If you're somebody who's coming in here and is a skeptic, you need to wrestle with the truthfulness of this before you can understand the meaning of it. And I encourage you to, to dig deeper into that. Now, I want us to, I want us to look at what Jesus, uh, what this story means to us. And as I said, I think this is all about putting across to us what Christ wants to do in our lives. And it may not be the case that he wants to reproduce exactly what he does in these stories. But partly the reason why we dig into these stories and seek to understand them is because we want to know what he is like so that we trust him to do what's best in our lives. It's a bit like if you, if you uh, worked in a, a great multinational corporation with thousands of employees all around the world. You may never know or have even met the owner of that company. But let's say one day one of your colleagues is telling you a story over lunch how they used to work in the basement and they bumped into the owner in the lobby just randomly, recognized him, knew who it was and had a conversation. The owner had asked him, how are you doing? How are you finding work? And he said, look, I'm, I'm enjoying the work but I hate being down in the basement. And, they, and the next day, they're moved from the basement to the top floor with a beautiful view over the city of London. Now, would you have it in your mind that you would go to the owner the next day? You'd even find their email on the intranet at work or whatever it is and say, can I be moved to the top floor? You know, you know it wouldn't work, right? But what you would know is that this, this, this is a good man who cares about his employees. So if you were finding yourself in a position of frustration with a bad boss or underpay or facing prejudice in the workplace or some kind of injustice, you know that you can contact that man and he'll want to do what's right on your behalf if he, has, if he understands your situation. And this is how we read these stories. When we're, when, we're, when we're seeing Christ in these stories, we're seeing what he is like and getting to know him, getting to trust him in the knowledge that we can bring our needs to him and he's going to deal with us in the right way because he's good. And I want to show you a few things about the kinds of people that Christ touches. He touches the humble, he touches the defiled, and he touches the broken. Jesus touches the humble. This is an absolute precondition in the Christian faith. The only person who is ready to experience the power of God in their life is somebody who has come to the end of themselves, who realizes that their deepest problems are problems that they cannot solve, and therefore you turn to God. Some people grow up in and around church their entire lives and never really come to that realization, therefore 
live under the delusion that they're Christian. But they've never really turned to God in the deepest sense. So they've never been humbled. That may even be you. You think, I've been, a, I've been a Christian my entire life, but I've never experienced the power of God. Well, there's hope in this. Because there's, there's still some way to go, possibly, when, which God has to break down the pride in your heart to help you understand just how much you need the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it seems to me when I'm reading this story that, it, that this humility is characteristic and is essential in the characters that we see here. Look at Jairus. He was, we're told he was one of the rulers of the synagogue. In other words, within their culture and within that context, he was one of the most preeminent men in town. Everybody knew who Jairus was. His life was well healed. He had everything he needed. He was, in some ways, a man of stature in the community. And yet, we're told how he approaches Jesus. It says that he fell at his feet and implored him. He began begging Jesus for help. Now, normally when you meet these kinds of people in the Gospels, they are the last people who are interested in, in coming to Jesus. It's the same today, isn't it? And Christ called it. He said it's very, very difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom. In fact, he said it's impossible, except by the power of God. And it's not just wealth, it's whenever you have everything you need in life, the great block to experiencing spiritual reality is the pride which prevents you from feeling your need for God. And what is it that brings this man from his position of stature to a place of abject bankruptcy of spirit and total humility before the Lord Jesus Christ such that he can fall on the floor and beg the Lord in front of the massive crowd to help him. And the answer, of course, is suffering. Nothing will humble a person faster than suffering that you cannot control. Because it may be the case that in life you find that every problem you encounter you can solve until this. And nothing, nothing worse than suffering within your own family and particularly one of your own children. You look at the woman also who approaches Jesus. Mark wants us to really understand just the depth of her, how broken she was. If Jairus was experiencing acute pain and suffering on that day, watching his daughter rapidly decline towards death, and she was at death's door when he's begging Christ and he's desperate, this woman had experienced the slow burn of daily pain and frustration and suffering for 12 years. And we're told, Mark tells us about her, that she'd suffered much under many physicians, had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She's deeply uncomfortable. She's in pain every day through this constant menstrual bleeding. More than that, you know, all the remedies that she would have encountered in her day and age were just essentially quack medicine. I um, was reading in one of the commentaries how the Talmud, in the Talmud, which is a Jewish um, rabbinical document that was written around the same time as the New Testament, which recorded many of the rabbis' practices and so on, there are no less than 11 cures listed for this exact sickness. And let me just read to you a few of those. One of them says that you should take 
the gum of Alexandria, I'm not sure what that is, an alum of the same, still don't know what that is, and a crocus, which I assume is the flower. And it says, let them be bruised together and given in wine to the woman that has an issue of blood. It says, if this does not benefit, take of Persian onions three pints, boil them in wine, and give her to drink, and say, arise from thy flux. If this does not cure her, set her in a place where two ways meet at crossroads, and let her hold a cup of wine in her right hand, and let someone come behind her and frighten her. And say, arise from thy flux. You can imagine the terror on this woman's face as she's led to this crossroads and just told, just wait there, it's all fine. Hold this glass of wine. And then someone creeps up behind her and shouts. And, and you know, if she jumps and spills the wine, then she's going to be healed, apparently so. And this is what this woman had had to put up with, this sort of thing. She'd gone to the doctors. They told her all this nonsense. And we're told that, you know, she reaches the end of herself because... She's got no money left. She spent all her money on, on doctors, something we don't experience in this country because we've got the NHS. But you know, in days before uh, such things, then this is what happened. You spent everything if you were sick, and you ended up in her situation of being poor, isolated, broken, and totally hot, disheartened. And my question to you is whether you've reached the end of yourself. I sometimes watch people struggling in a chronic way with frustrations in their life. Why won't God solve this? Why won't God give me what I want? And sometimes the answer is because you haven't really been humbled. I think about some of the evidences in our own lives when we see this lack of humility. You think about prayerlessness. When we fail to pray, it's because we still think we can solve our problems, isn't it? And how often in day-to-day life we, we seek to control everything. and we, try, we exhibit a kind of self-satisfaction with how things are going. And it seems to me, you read stories like this. The only time people reach this kind of faith, in, whereby they kind of metaphorically put out their hand and grab hold of Christ as their last hope and their last bit at at solving their problem is when they've reached the very end of themselves. And they're the people Christ loves to touch. In fact, that's how that's how salvation works. You only you can only be a Christian, the Bible says, when you become poor in spirit. Which is to say, Christ can only touch the life of someone who has so experienced the bankruptcy of soul that you know that your only hope is a saviour who can do what for you what you cannot do for yourself. How different from the way many people conceive of what it means to be a Christian, in which they think you've just got to sort your life out and then you're okay with God. And it's, no, it's the very opposite. You have to recognise that you have no hope of sorting out the mess of your own life. And you need Jesus to do it for you. Jesus touches the broken. Another thing you see in the story is that he touches the defiled. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, both of these stories are, have a, a significance which only made sense to the Jewish hero of what was happening on these days. Because in both instances, Jesus touches someone who is ceremonially and according to the law, totally and utterly defiled. Now, this, this goes some way to explaining this little interaction Jesus has with this woman, how 
she wants to touch him and how he then says, who touched me? And how she's totally in terror and afraid in owning up to it being her. You don't understand this when you just read it the first time. But it has to do with the fact that the law had, had given very specific uh, uh, instructions around the whole issue of menstrual bleeding, as it does for many conditions of body, and said that somebody in that situation is ceremonially unclean for the period of their bleeding. And not only that, but the Bible also shows us that 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 kind of uncleanness or defilement was something that would spread. And all of this was designed to teach, teach us about what sin is like. Not that it was sinful to bleed, but that, that this whole thing... Was, was a kind of object lesson in, in how sin works in, the life, in life. And the Old Testament is really clear about the fact that it says, cleanness doesn't transmit. Holiness doesn't transmit. If you brush up against a holy object, and some of the objects in the temple were holy, if you touched holy meat, that holiness wouldn't transmit to you. But if you touch something that's unclean, that uncleanness would transmit to you. Now, all of that makes a lot more sense of what happens in this story and how inappropriate her actions were. For one thing, she was not supposed to be in a crowd. And for another thing, she was definitely not supposed to touch Jesus. And this explains his question, how he's aware, isn't he, that something has just happened in the spiritual realm that he puts it that power has gone out from him. And how she feels in that moment the weight of her wrong and her unworthiness. You've got to understand this woman was a crushed woman. I think possibly the only way we can really begin to get close to what she must have experienced in day-to-day life is how you know, back in the 1980s when the whole HIV epidemic was becoming well-known and internationally known, one of the things that people experienced was fear and terror about someone about contracting the disease in the air or sitting on a public toilet or touching someone with HIV and suddenly you'd be infected as though that was how it worked. And so to own up to having that would be to be ostracized and to be held at arm's length. And this woman had experienced this on a day-to-day basis. She knew what it felt like to be defiled. And I think, in a sense, that's exactly what you and I feel like on account of the wrongs that we've done in life. There's a similar thing going on when Jesus touches the dead girl. The greatest defilement in the universe is death. And the Old Testament shows us that a dead body was out of bounds. That those who had to deal with the dead bodies did it as quickly as possible and then had to go through Ceremonies to be cleansed of the defilement that had touched them, yet Jesus does not hesitate to reach out his hand and touch her. Now, what, what is going on here? This ought to be a question that, that burns with us because of the experience we all feel of shame. And I know, I know that you know what that feels like, not because I'm some kind of clairvoyant, but because I'm human, because I've experienced this myself. That there are things in your life and in your past that you have never owned up to before another person. You never confessed to. That maybe there are habits of thought or of action 
that have a control on you in the present, which you are frustrated but do not seem to be able to gain control over. That there are desires which you do not seem to be able to put into their place. When Christ, when Christ had the interaction with this woman in which she touched him, and power went out from him and made her whole, and then he went and touched the dead body, two events in one day, I think he was wanting to demonstrate for us his passion to make us clean. There's a verse in the end of 2 Corinthians 5 that puts it like this. It says, for our sake, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, that's in one verse for me is the, the very heart of the Christian faith. That in Christ at that, that point of contact, as it were, at touching him, a great exchange takes place in which all of the defilement of sin and of mess and of dirtiness and of mistakes and of wickedness that's in our own lives is put upon him in an instant and all of the righteousness of his perfect life, the life which pleased the Father, is given to you so that you are no longer considered defiled. Are you a Christian who lives with that sense of heaviness, like you're carrying stuff that you shouldn't be carrying? I think there's something so sad about that. It will inhibit your spiritual life. It will prevent you from walking in spiritual power. It will prevent you from finding usefulness within Christ's kingdom and his church. If you carry with you that self-excluding distancing of saying, I'm not worthy. And the Bible has shown you that through Christ, you have become the righteousness of God. Christ wants to touch the defiled. It may be the case that you're not a Christian. And maybe some of what I'm saying to you resonates. You understand what guilt feels like. And you haven't known how to deal with it. These stories exist to show us what Christ's touch can do in your life. Lastly, Jesus touches the broken. Every one of these characters has a beautiful interaction with Jesus. I think about, first of all, this woman who... Actually, first of all, yeah, first of all, the woman who, when he turns around and says, who touched me? And the disciples say, well, lots of people are touching you. And she owns up to it. So she owns up in fear and trembling, fell down before him and told him the whole truth. I love how he turns to her and says, daughter. Do you know, this is the only occasion in the Gospels when Jesus refers to a woman as daughter. Daughter, he says. Your faith has made you well. Why does he speak to her in that way? Because this woman needed, above all, the acceptance of a fatherly affection. 
She's experienced nothing but ostracization for years and years. And Jesus comes to her and says, daughter. And with that, there's the authority of a fatherly authority in her life. This isn't just a peer coming alongside and saying, there, there, everything's okay. This is someone of stature and spiritual authority saying to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And even as he says the words, because of who he is, it happens. When someone with authority steps into the situation and says, have peace, even the speaking of those words brings about peace in your heart. And this is what Christ does with the broken. Daughter, he says. I love the interaction also with Jairus, how Jairus is just, you know, you never see anything more insensitive than this. But while they're still pressing through the crowd, rushing, hurrying, and you can imagine Jairus' anxiety as this little, this little interruption has happened with the woman. He just wants to get Jesus to his house to get there just in time. Please come quickly before my daughter dies. And then instead, messengers come from his house and say, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Of course, you just can't imagine how crushed he must have felt in that moment. But Jesus, Jesus knows exactly what's going on in his life, how broken he must feel in that instant, and turns to him and says, Do not fear, only believe. We've seen this already in Mark's Gospel, how Jesus sets these two things in opposition to one another, that you can either give way to fear or you can enjoy the experience of faith. And those two things are mutually exclusive. The presence of fear in your life indicates a lack of faith and trust in the living God who is in control. But as you grow in your belief and trust in him, fear will diminish and shrink into its place. How gently he deals with us. And I love, of course, the interaction he has with this little girl. Again, it's a fatherly stance. Talitha Kumi. Little girl, I say to you, arise. What I'm hoping you see here and all through the Gospels is how gentle the Lord Jesus Christ is. Not in the, the kind of the Christmas carol sense, little baby who can do no wrong, but in the fatherly, authoritative, healing way that he comes in and touches lives all the time. Some of you have a wrong conception of who God is. You think God is constantly judging you, or you feel that he's distant from you, or you feel that he, he wants to break you, or you, you feel that he's harsh with you. And your view of who God is should not be shaped by what you imagine, but should be shaped by what you see of Jesus in the Gospels. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the Bible tells us. He is the exact representation of the Father's nature, it says in Hebrews 1. So when you see the way Jesus comes into the lives of these broken people and begins ministering to them in a gracious way, a healing way, you know what the Father is like. You know how he wants to deal with you in the mess you're in. And how he wants to fix your situation. How he wants to change your life. I love this verse in Matthew 12. 
It's actually quoting from Isaiah. It's talking about a day on which Jesus was just healing lots of people. And then he quotes this section from Isaiah where it says about the suffering servant. He will not quarrel nor cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. There are times in life when you feel like you are a bruised reed. Imagine how a blade of a reed, once it's bent and cracked and broken, it can't be mended, can it? Or a wick as it's just dying out. Sometimes it feels like your spiritual life is like that. You're just on the very edge. That just the, t- the tiniest puff could just blow it out. It says of Jesus that the way he moved among people was like one who would not break the bruised reed. He would deal tenderly with the bruising. And he wouldn't blow out the smoldering wick. He wasn't, he wasn't blasting through and, and, and crushing people left, right, and center with his unrealistic expectations of how he wanted people to be. He would rather come in and just gently coax, coax to life what remained. Where he saw humility, where he sees brokenness, he comes in and brings healing. And friends, this is what we know about God through the, throughout the scriptures. Let me read you a few verses. He, Psalm 103. It says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust. If you're anything like me, the frustration with your own weakness can be a daily battle, can't it? Why can't I change? Why can't I live up to my own hopes and expectations? Never mind the Lord's. And yet, what it says in the scriptures is that the Lord knows your frame. He made it after all. It says he remembers that you're dust. He remembers that you are made of fragile things. And in your weakness, he wants to come alongside you and help you. I'm not talking about, we're not talking here about the thing which would so play into the spirit of the age at the moment that he would encourage that sense of victimhood which always blames other people for the suffering you're experiencing. Nor are we particularly wanting to play to that whole idea of brokenness which becomes an identity where people wallow in their sense of brokenness and almost wear it like a badge or a label to excuse their behavior. But rather it's, it's the humility of saying, Lord, I want to change. I, I've made a mess of things. And how f- the Father wants to come in and start to mend and to heal and to rebuild and shape and strengthen what remains. I think again of a verse at the end of Hebrews chapter 4. How we're told in these passages that Christ became like us to, to experience what we experience in life and to understand our, our situation. And it says at the end when it describes him as a high priest over us. It says we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Because so often the high priest was somebody on high. Whose life was exemplary but had no sympathy for the hoi polloi down in the dirt. It says we don't have one like that. It says rather one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Yet without sin. 
the Lord Jesus comes alongside you, yes, he's stronger. Yes, he didn't fail. But he puts his arm around you as a brother would. To minister to you his kindness. I love the way that Paul recounts his own experience of this grace of God in his life. In 2 Corinthians 12, he's talking about the frustration that he feels. And of all the Christian heroes, Paul seems to be right up there as one of the greatest. But he says, I had a thorn in my flesh. He calls it a messenger of Satan. And we don't know what it is. But it seems to have caused him real frustration. It could be the experience of a temptation. Or it could have been a physical ailment, like a sickness. It could have been his bad eyesight, which must have been a deep frustration to him. Whatever it was, he said, I pleaded with God three times to take it away. And then he said, the word of Christ came to him in his weakness, in his sense of insufficiency, and said this, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. How tender our Savior is. How near to the broken and the suffering In what part of your life do you need a touch from Christ? If you are not a Christian, to be a Christian can be explained in those terms. It is to touch the garment of Jesus so that all of your defilement goes to him and he gives you his righteousness. You think, well, that seems unfair. That's right. That's what Christianity is about. Suddenly when you get labeled the righteousness of God, the power of God is made available to you. And you find your life is starting to turn around and you weren't even, you weren't even trying. How does that work? Well, it's Christ. And you may... Maybe tonight you want to touch his garment, as it were, for the first time. It requires, as I told you earlier, the humility of understanding that you have made a mess of things. Everyone here who is a believer in Jesus had to come to that point and comes to it regularly, even on a daily basis. Are you ready to do that? It may also be the case that you are a Christian who's just been in the pit somehow. It may be suffering that you're enduring. It may be temptation that you're wrestling with. It may be the sense of guilt and condemnation that just dogs you from day to day. Whatever your weakness is, whatever place in your life you need a touch from Jesus, I want us to respond to him now. And just as Jairus, it said, fell at his feet and implored him, In other words, humbled himself to the ground before the Lord of all. I want you to bow your head if you you need to come to Jesus now with whatever your thing is. And I encourage you to open your hands, which is a posture of receiving it, saying, look, I'm empty-handed. Without you, I don't have solutions. This is one of the reasons why Christians open their hands. And it's in order to receive the touch from the Lord. 
I want us just to pray together in the quiet. Maybe you're ready to make the decision to follow Jesus for the first time. You could just pray a prayer like this. You just come to him and say, Lord Jesus, I've done wrong. Forgive me. And give me your righteousness. And when it's said with faith, just like the woman touched the woman with faith, which is to say she believed on him, trusted in him as her only solution, immediately it is affected. It happens. Christ begins to transform you. Maybe there's some other thing. Whatever it is, I want to just give you a couple of moments of silence in which you can just have dealings with God.